0: First of all, you, you realize that who you hang out with has a, a measurable and long-lasting effect on your behaviors. So we know that if your three best friends are obese uh, and uh, and unhealthy, there's a 150 percent better chance that uh, we'll be overbe obese and unhealthy. That uh, drug use, that uh, alcohol abuse, they're all measurably contagious. Even unhappiness and loneliness are measurably contagious. Uh, So the first step I argue is that you take stock in your immediate social circle now, and and we may have friends. I actually, on on my blue zones website, we have a scorecard that helps you sort of, you know, assess your friends. And um, you you know, I I wouldn't necessarily tell you to dump your old friends who, you know, belly up to the bar and eat, what do you call bangers and mash and, and, you know, pound uh, four pints of beer a day. But I will tell you, but you should know that, those people are influencing you in a bad way. If health and happiness are, you know, important to you, uh, you might want to spend more time, put a little bit more effort on those healthy friends. And then if you don't have enough, uh, three to five, I would say of really healthy friends in your social immediate social circle. Um, one of the best ways to find them is to volunteer people that, you know, like if you're passionate about animals and, you work with the local a pet shelter or humane society, you're likely to find people who share interests and passions. And, and that, is, that is one of the most predictive uh, uh, features of making a friend. It's, it, it, it's, it's called homophily. We tend to like people like us. So there's you f- start first looking in pools of people who are like us, so
1: many years ago, we used to do competitive yoga. And I know that's quite strange, the idea of, of competitive yoga. But coming from competitive rugby, yoga, it was hard to lose that competitive edge. So Dave one time was able to do Marie Chastana C, then I was able to do it. Then we were able to do Marie Chastana D, and then we managed to sit in full lotus. And anyone who kind of forces it or rushes it can often develop knee problems. And particularly as a rugby player, we never had flexible hips. So we used to sit in full lotus till our knees literally I don't think they quite popped, but we definitely had bad knees for a good number of years to the case where Stephen at one stage, nearly, he, he had booked an operation, but actually canceled it. And back about five years ago, a friend, Tony Riddle, he said, lads, what are you doing wearing those cushioned big shoes? What are you doing? They've a narrow toe box. Your, your actual posture starts with your feet. And he gave us pairs of Vivo Barefoot shoes. We didn't know anything about them. Didn't and know what the hell a toe box didn't, was. Didn't know where we were. But anyway, we've worn them for five years. We've had no knee problems since it. Like really, I can't believe how incredible it's been for improving our own postures and our own movement. Uh, and again, that, that, this is an anecdotal story. This isn't to say by wearing these shoes, you're going to fix your knees. But in our experience, it really helped our overall relationship with our body and how it connects to the earth and really Tony explained to us back when he first gave it to us that like when you do wear a cushion sole you are actually you're, you're taking away a lot of the information we've got the same amount of nerve endings in our feet as we do in our hands and there's a huge amount of information and muscle building that happens when our feet and obviously like if you think about it our knees and our hips and our spine are stacked on top of our feet so if we get our foundation right a bit like a house if you've got a good solid foundation it's a lot easier to get the walls straight and get the roof upright whereas if your foundation is odd and Stephen can explain to, attest to this With his treehouse building, when he gets his base wrong, it was a lot harder to build the walls because nothing was level, and then your roof certainly wasn't level. So now your treehouse is good. So it's charming charming and wonky. But but even I always like this idea. So so if say you're jumping on a trampoline, the trampoline itself kind of gives it it bounces in relationship to you. Versus if you're jumping on a wooden floor. You have to be soft and flexible because the floor is really hard. And similarly, if you wear a cushion shoe, when you jump in, up and down or run in a cushion shoe, it's the cushion that absorbs the impact versus if you're wearing a, a minimal or barefoot shoe. When you run it, it's actually your body has to be more softer. So we found in, in the case of using barefoot shoes that our bodies are typically softer. So anyway, we've been wearing Vivo Barefoots for five years. Fantastic shoes. They're a regenerative shoe company. They use all sustainable ingredients. They're a B Corp company. So ingredients, ingredients in their shoes. Oh, yes. uh, materials. Sorry, Stephen. Uh, they're really class. Our kids wear them. Our wives wear them. They're really, really... I, I couldn't say enough good about them. They have very generously offered a 20% discount for anyone that wants to try them. They've given a 100-day free trial, so you can get, send them back after 100 days. All you got to do is use the code HAPPYPAIR20 at the wherever you put the code in, just go to vivobearfoot.com. They've got a range of casual shoes, men's shoes, women's shoes, it's kids' really shoes. Cool. I love my hiking ones. I wear them down the farm. Yeah. So great. anyway, if you're interested, fantastic shoes. Couldn't recommend them more. Go to vivobearfoot.com and the code is HAPPYPAIR20 for 20% off. This week's podcast is with an absolute hero of ours. Dan Buettner is the founder of The Blue Zones. The Blue Zones are the five places in the planet where there's the longest living people. And he has done all the research. He's written loads of number one best selling books on it, including cookbooks, and really, he's just... He also f- holds the world record as the longest land distance recorded cycling or something. He's yeah, he, he owns a... He, he uh, has a Guinness World Record as well. But super interesting man, so articulate. He's been at this for 20 years and he's he's just so well-versed at what what are the factors that lead to a long, happy, wholesome, healthy life. And he this is from experience, from talking to the longest living people on this planet and doing surveys. And he's so data-focused and driven-focused that it's it's just he he's his work wondered. over the last five to six years has been how to apply the learnings from the blue zones to American cities. So he's really about the practical application of the findings from the blue zones.
0: Can you give me examples of what the blue zones are? What blue zones.
1: You got you got Okinawa in Japan. You got Ikari in Greece. You got Sardinia in Italy. You've got Costa Rica, a place in Nicoya Peninsula, in Costa Rica, and a place in Loma Linda, California. And it's the it's the most evented places those places or whether it's the most amount of centenarians or people live over the age of 100. And there's, there's various factors. Nine like, lifestyle factors that predicate why they live such long. And he, he went in and did all this with National Geographic and a bunch of scientists and cartographers to try to find out like serious data to find out how these people live such long lives and how can we apply it to our own lives. And obviously food is one of them. You know, a plant slant and, you know, purpose and movement. And there's so many different factors to it. But in this conversation, we talk about happiness. behavior, be, happiness, we talk about behavioral change and environmental design and how. The people you surround yourself, what an impact they have on your lives. It's really incredible. And how to do an audit on your close friends. It's quite interesting. Ooh, and watch. even if we got into like finding your purpose, so that was pretty cool. Yeah. Real practical tips. It was very practical, very tangible. And it was a great laugh. He's Dan, a dude. He's he really fantastic. is. I, this I look, is
0: our uh, second podcast episode yeah. with us, with yeah. him as well. And I look
1: forward to doing more with him because he yeah. really is. He's just, he's brilliant. We're going to go play pickleball with him one day in Miami. <laughs> yeah. So there we go. Without further ado, we give you the wonderful Dan Butner.
0: I'm in Miami right now. And, um, you know, I just I did it. I did a mile. Well, a kilometer swim this morning and um, I've been traveling like a viral pandemic and join. I I have an article coming out for National Geographic. I always love, you know, people l- like to say they love to write. I don't believe anybody who tells you they love to write. You can be pretty sure they're not a writer, but I love to have written and I've done all my writing and now I have the, you know, the wonderful uh, period of the, the book. You know publishing process and in uh talking uh to people like you and um yeah it's 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 that's good. a fun
1: process that's kind of like the party you know there's always that work right. behind <laughs> and the nervousness about asking people to come to a party or whatever it might be, and then it's like when they arrive, it's like
0: ah oh, great
1: But c- certainly in terms of book, yeah. you know the way you write the book and then by the time it comes out, there's usually six months or a year. And you've kind of forgotten that you've done the work. That's it. right. And then when it comes out, it's like, oh, yeah, I get the fruits of the, you know, I get the joy and the of work, which I've previously done. So it's nice. It's like saving, if you know what I mean.
0: Somebody asked you, like, well, could you what? You know, what, as you wrote in chapter four and I I don't, I don't remember what chapter four was.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> it's normally half a year ago. And it's often when you only when the book comes out and you have a good look, you go, I remember this book. This book was brilliant, actually. Yeah, like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah so, it's funny. And, and the new book is Blue Zone's Challenge, which I think is really... Yeah, like four weeks or a year, you're trying to apply it to either to apply the principles for four weeks or to apply them for a year, which I think is amazing. And even, even like, I guess the first question which someone asked was, uh, and so relevant is, like, how do we apply Blue Zone Challenge principles to modern life and particularly living in the Northern Hemisphere like Ireland or Canada or in- or the UK or, or whatnot. And can I have a prefix to that one? Are all blue zones purely in kind of warm Mediterranean climates or similar climates? Because it seems like very few of them are more northerly where they actually have a cold winter. They seem to be in all in this lovely kind of pleasant yeah. temperature. Yeah,
0: it's it's it really is. You, you nailed it. It's a sweet spot. It's not tropics where people die pre- prematurely often of infectious disease like malaria or cold cholera and it's not in the north and we actually have very good uh, uh demographic maps seeing the the heat maps of long of centenarians in like northern japan not very many they eat a lot of pickles and pork and you know spam up there and as you go south to okinawa where produce the longest of people in the world they're outside more they get more vitamin d they're moving around more they have uh, uh three garden seasons per year and um uh, they, yeah, yeah I, it's a sweet spot. It's like the 20th parallel. Um, uh, that's, that seems to be where, where most longevity occurs.
1: Wow. And that's kind of the sweet spot. So if you are more northerly, you really need to make that little bit of exercise, exercise more of that willpower, try to create more of an environment that forces more movement, more yeah, activity. And
0: you hit it, I think on, on the environment, uh, you know, one the important revelation in blue zones, these people do not possess more willpower than us. I, in fact, I'd argue they possess less willpower. They 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 don't have outside sense of discipline or, you know, the individual responsibility our politicians tell us to have as they unleash us into the toxic food environment. They simply live live in ecosystems where their micro choices throughout the day are perceptibly better. Uh, over so the cheapest and healthiest and most delicious foods is whole food plant based it's easier than w- to walk than drive the option to implode in their uh in their handheld devices doesn't really exist so they're socializing with other people uh, they live in places where sense of purpose comes with mother's milk and it's it's really these uh subtler ideas that is manifestly producing more longevity than than uh, any place else in the world, and, and I think that's the that's the big takeaway that longevity is rarely successfully pursued. Uh, it in, ensues in by setting up our our environment in the right way. And the Blue Zone challenge, as you um, point out, was you know a book that I tried to kind of convey how you could take four weeks and set up your environment so longevity would ensue. But my this the books that's coming out, I hope we can talk about today. It's a lot blurry here. will uh, well forget that. It's I called The could. Blue Zone American Kitchen. Blue Zone America, And this is based on your two
1: years traveling around around America exploring, because most people think of, I I love the concept of this one, because it was about, you know, most people, when I think of America, I think of junk food, and I kind of go, there's no way. And you went looking kind of deeper down into kind of traditional American diets, where there's actually the forgotten kind of whole food version of real food, and often it's in more kind of ethnic cultures, because I saw lots of your pictures on Instagram. It was like, this is cool, damn, what you're doing. But because because I wonder how far back it. how far back the recipes would have to be because it's almost it had to be pre-industrial revolution nearly or it had to be early it had to be pre I don't know 1980s or something I'd imagine but that's it, right yeah. and, and you, you, nailed, t- it. You're you nailed it you know, the, the lost American diet for longevity I love it
0: yes so you know it was really 1970 the diets really went to hell and and the standard American diet emerged and it, you know if people in Scott in, in ireland are unhealthy it's probably america's fault because we we uh, exported this this horrible way of eating um, there's nobody's real fault uh, i mean nobody, nobody i mean it happened sort of insidiously uh in in uh, 1970 we had this agricultural bill not enough people there wasn't enough food to go around and and our president nixon uh, created this agricultural bill that favored the production of corn soybeans, wheat and rice and flooded the market with that and inner enterprising american companies took those cheap grains and made things like doritos and twinkies and and uh ultra processed foods and uh, you know 70% of our grocery stores are filled with those very bad for us uh but then what happened is the the cattlemen Uh, The the meat producers of America, they pulled their animals out of the grass, uh, out of the the pastures and put them on these horrible, filthy, uh, cruel laden uh, feedlots where they fed them corn and soybeans and that fattened them up in a hurry. But as a result, uh, we got fat, first of all, cheap meat, uh, more laden with uh, fat, a much higher levels of omega-6 fatty acids ins- instead of the healthy omega-3 fatty acids and meat became so cheap that now in America every American is consuming about 100 kilograms of meat every single year which is an absurd amount and you guys know you know the reason you and I are you guys and I are friends uh, is because I think we both violently agree that a healthier world has to come from avoiding the the meats, especially the toxic meats in our system, than eating a more whole food, plant-based diet.
1: Totally agree hundred yeah. percent. Very cool. And how was the journey then going exploring these cultures in, in America? Because and where you did probably you, had, you had to look a lot more under the surface because the surface level of American culture, it's fast food, it's junk food, it's so pervasive. So you really probably had to go deep and go on an adventure. I, I, I was kind of reading it was like a two year adventure you were on exploring yes. and in people's homes. And it was like what you're doing with the Blue Zones.
0: So it was an assignment for National Geographic. There'll be a uh, companion piece to the Blue Zone American Kitchen in January's issue of National Geographic. But um, So the standard American diet uh, kills 680,000 Americans every year, more than a half a million. That's more than all the wars combined over the last decade. And um, so... I wondered, you know, I know from having written about blue zones, diets, and longevity around the world, I knew exactly what the blue zone diet looked like. And I hired a researcher from NYU uh, to help us go into uh, the archives in America to find, to see if we could find a culture uh, who ate essentially a blue zone diet. And we found it among uh, people living between 1900 and 1920. We found it among the African-Americans, Asians, Latin, Asian and Latin immigrants, and then the Native Americans. And remarkably, they're eating mostly a whole food diet. They do eat some meat, but the meat was used as a condiment, you know, as a flavoring or, you know, was eaten during celebratory times. You know, maybe uh, 10 percent of their diet or 10 to 15 percent of their diet came from animals. But the vast majority came from, as we've seen elsewhere in the world, uh, whole grains, uh, greens, tubers like sweet potatoes and regular potatoes, and squash, squash is not a tuber, but um, similarly nutrition, um, uh, nuts, and then beans. And, and we know that people eat about a cup of beans a day are living about four years longer than people who don't eat beans. So uh, those were the diets. And um, for the Blue Zone American Kitchen, we found the best heritage chefs Uh, in america took me a long time we had to hire producers we traveled from the northwest to the southeast and vice versa and all the way to hawaii 55 chefs who know how to make these maniacally delicious whole food plant-based uh uh recipe recipes come to life wow cool
1: and did you find that the chefs were actually older than that if it was typically pre-1970s did you find that the chefs or else they passed them down to other enthusiasts that's a great yeah you know I never
0: thought about that but you know in the in the first book blue zone kitchen when we went back to the blue zones almost all the chefs were over 80 so they've been pres- preserved a way of eating that centenarians had eaten most of their life um, but no, not for this. Not for this book. Most of the chefs were younger and who realized the uh, the culinary treasure trove of the way their ancestors ate and were bringing it back to life. Uh, so there's a, a very interesting subculture in America, Gullah Geechee, who were the great rice farmers of the Southwest. They were uh, originally American slaves uh, who arrived, and they. Uh, assimilated the influence of Native Americans, uh, namely their use of corn, uh, beans, and squash, uh, the influences of their European uh, enslavers, and uh, fused it with their West African traditions and made this uniquely Gullah Geechee cuisine, which includes the original gumbos. Nice. Think of gumbos as seafood from, from um, uh, New Orleans, but actually... Uh, the main feature in a gumbo is okra. I don't know if you have okra in.
1: Yeah, Ireland. love okra. Yeah, ladies' fingers only in Asian supermarkets. Oh, it's typically. Amazing.
0: It's exquisite slime.
1: Yeah, yeah. No. oh it's yeah. A- but there is a trick to cooking it where it doesn't get slimy. I can't actually remember what that trick it's is. But the definitely is up, up, not to uh, overcook uh, it.
0: Uh, but most, you know, actually, you want that slime because that's what thickens soups and and makes them a soup or a, a gumbo or a stew hearty and um, so. Uh, there's reasons these foods appear so prominently in, in these different, uh, different cuisines. And did
1: you find a lot of them are bean heavy? Like I I can imagine like, you know, black beans in a gumbo or whatever. And I'm, I'm like, I'm thinking of pre 1970s. You typically, you grew the three sisters. You had your corn beans, and, um, squash. Corn beans squash. and squash. Yeah, they were the three, the three sisters, which typically was a, you know, a growing pattern. So I wonder those three must have been in many of the recipes I can imagine.
0: You know, one of the things I reveal in this book, I, I know you don't celebrate Thanksgiving much in, in Ireland, but uh, it's a big holiday here in America. And we typically associate turkey and pumpkin pie and stuffing with uh, with uh, Thanksgiving. But, uh, and the, the real first Thanksgiving probably had none of those. There, there was not butter, there was not flour. There probably, we're not even sure there was turkey at the original. Uh, what we do know is that most of the foods came from Native American sources, so that what they probably ate at the first Thanksgiving was succotash, which wow. was a combination of corn, beans, squash, and some greens, and some other native herbs, and so forth, um, and, and maybe some uh, like, sort of like tamales that may have been filled with hazelnuts or, or dried blueberries, so not at all what we think of Thanksgiving it was the actual first Thanksgiving, Wow, and, uh, you know so we, the the blue zone american kitchen actually includes uh how to how to prepare an original thanksgiving dinner i like that uh, we, we actually cooked with a wampanoag which is the original native american we cooked with a wampanoag chef uh, along with a modern day pilgrim who also happened to be a film his, i mean a food historian um so you know national geographic they make us uh they make us get our facts right and um so i'm very proud of you know this is very very it's a book with not only you know National Geographic photography and science writing but um you know the recipes are original sources they aren't things that Dan Butner dreamt up in his kitchen you don't want to eat those uh, <laughs> <laughs> these are these are food in the hands of gifted chefs uh with uh, with their roots uh, firmly in a food tradition a lost, uh, diet of longevity, I like to say, food tradition as lived out uh, in America. I as love alternative. that.
1: It's great work. I love, I love the kind of basic concept because, you know, when you previously released the books, they were obviously from faraway places, you know, not necessarily relatable to America. You know, there's Icaria and there's Sardinia or there's Sicily, there's Sardinia, there's, you know, Okinawa, there's Costa Rica and obviously there's Loma Linda, but they weren't very relatable. Whereas you've gone really deep and made it very applicable to North America, which you said is the kind of the root of the, you know, of the standard American diet really where it is. So I I really think it's Yeah, it's our most
0: lethal export. Yeah, it really
1: Um, is. Yeah, it really is. Um, On that note, I I wonder if I could just talk briefly on the topic of happiness, because, you know, our business is called The Happy Pair, and it's something that I adore. And I know it's something that you've done lots of research in terms of trying to find the happiest people in the world. And often they're very linked in terms of, and, and when people think of happiness, they tend to think of this excited, exuberant energy. But happiness typically is kind of more... Closer to contentment, I think, than it is this exuberant energy. It's more it's sustainable as opposed to, you know, burns out fast and quick. And I just wonder if you could talk about kind of where you found kind of the happiest people on the planet and did the environments where the environment's very similar to those in the blue zones.
0: Well, of course, the the very core of uh, worldwide happiness is the happy pair. Beyond uh, <laughs> yeah, that, uh, yeah, I, I did write a cover story for National Geographic magazine on happiness that w- that took a data back, back uh, backed approach, and then I wrote the book of Blue Zones of happiness that came out of that. And we like to start with the data. If you can't measure, it, you can't manage it. And, you know, uh, academically speaking, happiness is a meaningless term because you can't really measure happiness. But what social scientists can measure is something called life satisfaction. And they ask you to measure your life as a whole uh, and uh, rate it uh, your life satisfaction on a scale of one to ten. And remarkably, it varies vastly from country to country that, uh, you know, the, the, and then there's a second uh, uh, metric of happiness, which has people recalling the last 24 hours you only remember about 2% of your life. So asking you to remember your whole life is not going to get a very accurate uh, result, but remembering the last 24 hours, just about everybody can remember that. And, uh, that type of happiness is called affect or positive or negative affect. And for that, you're asked to remember in the last 24 hours, how often you felt joy and, um, smiled and laughed and felt stress and felt anger, etc. And, um, those two are, are weakly correlated They're probably a 0.5 correlation, but, um, to find the, um, happiest place in the world, I worked with Gallup and several other big databases. And, uh, for the, for the uh, life satisfaction number, we found the highest level of happiness in Northern Denmark, a place called Aalborg. Uh, geographically, not that far from you. It's migrated more to Finland, uh, since I wrote that article, but it's, you know, typically Scandinavia. And then um, uh, and then uh, the, for, for positive affect, we found that the highest level of happiness or people enjoying their life day to day. We found it in Cartago, Costa Rica, which is in the Central Valley of Costa Rica. Uh, in Asia, we found the happiest, uh, highest life satisfaction. And by the way, lowest rates of negative affect in Singapore, which shocks a lot of people. Uh, And uh, in the United States, it was in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, But to your point about environment, um, the, the, you know, if happiness were a cake recipe, and to your point, it's not about achieving the high highs. It's more about trying to maintain a high plateau. Um, And if if happiness were a uh, cake recipe, the most important ingredient are your social connections, having people around you who care about you on a bad day, who, um, uh, influence you in the right way, you know, eating whole food plant-based, I would argue is part of that, um, uh, it's having uh, enough money so you can handle ha- take care of your basic needs. It's probably, uh, you know, about, uh, 40 or, 50,000 euros a year for a small family, more in a big city. You don't really need more than that to be happy. Uh, You have to be healthy, of course. Uh, You have to have some mobility. Uh, Some education is important. Um, A meaningful work, something to give back. These are all measurable. But the ingredient with the biggest variability, in other words, if you're unhappy, the most powerful thing you can do and, and this will be disruptive. Is move. If you live in an unhappy place, and we know this from looking at worldwide data, when unhappy people in places, in poor places in Africa or in the Soviet bloc countries like Moldavia, move to happy countries like Denmark and even Canada, we see that in just one year, their sex doesn't change. Their, uh, their r- religious orientation doesn't share their, their age doesn't change their sex, their sexual uh, orientation doesn't change. Very, very little changes about them, but within one year, they, they're reporting the happiness level or the life satisfaction level of their adopted home, which often means a doubling of their happiness. There's nothing else you can do. There's no positive psychology course. There's no, you know, getting that dream, um, Uh, promotion that you want, uh, or even marrying somebody that's going to occasion that big of a pop of happiness uh, in one year than uh, just being in a, you know, moving. But but that really speaks to the most important uh, facet of happiness is your environment. It's not trying to change your behavior that works occasionally in the short run, but almost always fails in the long run. Uh, It's it's uh, trying to find an environment that's going to help architect your micro choices uh, uh, to produce greater levels of happiness. And uh, in both my article and the Blue Zones of Happiness, I, from a very data-based uh, um, uh, way, I, I I reveal how you can stack the deck in favor of happiness by shaping your surroundings.
1: Mm, By forcing you to eat more, by having close social interaction so that when you're feeling a bit down, you have friends to chat to that'll perk you up. That's right. Like it's kind of basics like that. The, The one thing which is interesting there that Denmark, Northern Denmark is, you know, theoretically, you know, according to your research, the happiest place, which is kind of in complete juxtaposition to where what we were saying about the longevity is typically along a warm kind of Mediterranean type climate. And typically when I think of happiness, I don't think of Denmark or northern Sweden or Finland or these kind of places. It's not when you walk down the street, you feel like you see people jubilant or joyous. Yay, it's a party! Or I don't even see people smiling and chatting. You know, when I've been to those places, they didn't strike me as typically happy people. They were quite close people. Whereas when I've spent time in typically poorer countries, you know, say, for example, in Guatemala, you're walking along and you see these smiles in kids and these smiles in 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 people that are living in kind of peasant type environments and their smiles are like, you feel like God is smiling at you. You know, you feel like the soul of the world is smiling at you. And when I go to Finland or these kind of like, or the likes of, I've never been to Singapore, but I've been to other kind of like very modern cities, obviously different, but similar in ways. And I haven't typically found them to be very, you know, joyous and jubilant. I found them to be safe and I found them to be high standard of livings. But in my interpretation of happiness, I think it's almost outside of the, like, obviously, it's, as you said, it's very arbitrary to measure it. And it's a very difficult one to grab hold of it. And you need to come up with measurements, which are never going to satisfy everyone's definition. But it's interesting that I would kind of see it slightly differently. And I'm sure everyone kind of does, you know, I'm sure it was challenging.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's academics call, you're, you're not um, unusual or may, maybe even wrong in uh, observing this, um that in poor countries like Africa and Latin America, uh, you see happy people in the street, but uh, academics refer to that as the native myth. And um, if you look into their lives, I guarantee you they're worried about their health, they're worried about their finances, uh, the many people have uh, great talents that their environment's not going to allow them. They might be great artists. And, you know, the only work option they have is to run the family farm or you know, the MILPAs. Uh, so they often can't express their, their, um, their talents and their passions. Um, and then they worry about what happens when they retire. And you juxtapose that to uh, Singapore, uh, both Singapore and Denmark, uh, free healthcare which we don't have here in America. So nobody has to worry about their health, uh, free education through, through university. Um, uh, fr- they have a higher land or higher standard of living than any other uh, retiree country in the world. Uh, they're safe places. Like Guatemala is a very uh, troubled area when it comes to their, their, their political and, and crime levels. So they're not worried about crime. So we often get, uh um, I I would say they're much more resilient and much better at dealing with uh, and and putting a happy face on a challenging uh, uh, environment. But when you actually sit down with them and ask them to rate their lives on a scale of one to 10, Guatemalans do not rate it very high. It's the it's these other places that self-report. So when I, when I say these things, I'm not saying that's my opinion. I am saying a representative sample a big representative sample in these countries uh, that represent the whole population. These populations are reporting lower levels of satisfaction and daily joy than uh, the, these places I profiled in my article. Love that. Great
1: comment. I love it. You're so on it, Dan. You're the man. Yeah. Uh, I have a good question that's very relevant to everyone. So you talk about the importance of social connections and social interactions. And now we're now living in an epidemic of loneliness. It's so pervasive. We're more digitally connected to ever. But loneliness is just ripe. And I kind of was kind of reading just there and you were kind of talking about how you can curate a close circle of friends, and I'm sure many people listening going, "I want that." Like you talk about in uh, Okinawa, where they typically have what do they call it? Where they five friends for life in Maui, and a they Mowes. have that, and they have that for life. For, for anyone listening, how do people cultivate that? How do people start? For someone listening going, Dan, I totally agree what you say. It's so perfect. How do people start? Like, where do they start? Where is the starting point? Is well, it I Facebook?
0: Think that is it Instagram? Hurt, hurt. <laughs> You know, I'm not that down on Instagram. I met you guys on Instagram, you know, and I I think if we lived a kilometer, 10 kilometers from each other, we'd be hanging out all the time, or at least I'd be pestering you to hang out all the time (laughs) Uh, because I think we share values and we share interests. You're active guys. We have similar diets. I I think we'd be great friends. Uh, First of all, you you realize that who you hang out with has a, a measurable and long lasting effect on your behavior. So we know that if your three best friends are obese, uh, and uh, and unhealthy, there's 150% better chance that uh, we'll be overbe- obese and unhealthy, that uh, drug use, that alcohol abuse, they're all measurably contagious. Even unhappiness and loneliness are measurably contagious. Uh, so the first step, I argue, is that you take stock in your immediate social circle now. And, and we may have friends, I actually, on, on my Blue Zones website, I, we have a scorecard that helps you sort of, you know, assess your friends, and, um, you, you know, you, I, I wouldn't necessarily tell you to dump your old friends who, you know, belly up to the bar and eat what do you call them, bangers and mash and, and you know, pound uh, four pints of beer a day. But I will tell you, but you should know that those people are influencing you in a bad way. Um so first, taking stock of your uh, immediate social circle. If health and happiness are you know important to you, uh, you might want to spend more time, put a little bit more effort on those healthy friends. And then, if you don't have enough uh, three to five, I would say, of really healthy friends in your social immediate social circle, um, one of the best ways to find them is to volunteer. People that you know, like if you're passionate about animals and you work with the local a pet shelter or humane society, you're likely to find people who share interests and passions. And, and that is, that is one of the most predictive, um, Uh, features of making a friend it's 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 called homophily we tend to like people like us so there's you start first looking in pools of people who are like us and then the second thing you want to look for repetition repetition it's called propinquity the more often we spend time with um, people like-minded people the greater chance to become a friend so you want to look at situations like-minded people and i'm going to see them a lot well where do you find that volunteer, um, sporting clubs, bicycling, pickleball. Um, and I would also say hobbies, you know, people who love, uh, to play bridge or, or to, um, uh, collect cars, you know, no matter what it is, but it's not, it's not going to be found for the most part, scrolling through your Instagram account. It's going to require you to get out. Um, and then the last, um, you know, if you actually, look through your contacts and uh, spend a half hour just paging through your address book, either electronically or old school and identify the people who are in my social circle, who I already know who are really healthy um, reaching out to them and proposing, uh, let's go out to dinner, you know, let's go play, you know, pickleball's all the rage here right now or, or play tennis. But we spend literally over $100 billion on diets every year. Uh, we spend another $100 billion or so on exercise programs. None of those work very well. They occasionally work in the short run, but they fail for almost all people almost all the time in the long run. Uh, what we really need to do uh, is look for long-term uh, influences in our lives and friends exert a measurable uh, and lasting impact on our 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 health and unconscious for the most part on our, our food decisions, our activity decisions. Um, and, you know, if you think of it, uh, you, you know, friends, your best friends, you know, and I see a few of them on Instagram, you guys spend a lot of time in the water. They've been friends probably for a long time and just think, you know, you two guys have known each other since the womb and um, you know, just think of the, how the reinforcing uh, blessing that uh, you, you know, your sibling is for each of you on um, reinforcing the healthy way you guys eat and live. Oh, yeah, it makes it so much easier having a, 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 a partner in crime in so many
1: ways. Like when we travel, if I was traveling my own and I was in an airport, i find it awkward to go over to the corner and start doing handstands or yoga. But when there's two of us, like, ah, should we go sure. I don't care if we look stupid. You know the way? Like, because there's very, two of us. Uh, and very quickly, others like, start to feel awkward looking at you. You know, because now <laughs> one person is too Yeah, you. But when two people are
0: doing this, I mean, and they're, they're, they're
1: both crazy. And they're emitting that energy of, what are you looking at? <laughs> you know, with that just brazen confidence Um, yeah there's another thing I was thinking about there is um, which you've obviously like and your approach is so interesting because yours is very much about willpower will only get us so far whereas it's really down to our environment and I wondered like you've had 20 years of blue zones and you've really got into the weeds of it and you know, it's coming around, January will come around and a lot of people kind of go, right, I'm going to change my diet. This is it. I'm going to join the gym. I'm going to, st-, you know, and they pucker up all that willpower and whatever. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on behavioral change, lasting behavioral change. And I, I have a fair idea that's going to go back to, you know, finding people to support you. But I just wondered because behavior changes, obviously, when I look at the standard American diet, we want to change our diets. We want to change so much of society and ultimately it comes down to individuals behavior change.
0: Yeah, and that never works. So, if you follow my finger here, oh, it's actually It's not going to work. Okay. So, so if you get a hundred people on a, uh, a whole food plant based diet today, or any diet, and you and they're not used to it, within three months you lose uh, about thirty uh, percent or ten percent. Within seven months, you lose ninety percent. And after two years, you lose almost all of them. Wow. There's no diet in the history of the world that's worked for more than 2% of the people after three years. Wow. So, you know, you, you wouldn't invest your money like that, but yet every year people make a new Year's. I want to get on that diet. Uh, same with exercise programs, similar recidivism curves. They start, we, we sign up for the gym. Uh, first of all, we think we're going to go three, four times a week. Uh, really the the average is more like four times a month. And the average length of a, a gym membership is about nine months. So it, it just, it works for a few Herculean people, yourselves included, who, who uh, have great discipline and great enthusiasm, but fewer than, of Americans uh, follow a healthy diet uh, and or a healthy exercise program. So if that doesn't work, what does Uh, diets and exercise fantastic for short term? They, they sell a lot of products, they make a lot of money, but they are failures for almost all the people, almost all the time. And I can tell you one thing for sure, when it comes to longevity, there's no short-term fix. You have to do the right things and avoid the wrong things for long enough to not develop a chronic disease: heart disease, diabetes, cancer, dementia, which which will kill 80 to 90 percent of all people on the planet right now. Uh, that only comes by doing. The right things for decades. And the only known way to shape human behavior so they'll do the right things is to shape their environment. I can't find any evidence to the contrary. I'm talking about populations. I'm not talking about, you know, certain individuals who have heroic discipline.
1: Mm. And what about okay, so so an interesting question just came to my mind there of kind of going, okay, Dan Butner, I love what you do. I love everything about your philosophy. I genuinely do. I admire your work as much as anyone. We cloak the blue zones day in and day out. I think it's wonderful. And I also go Right, if Dan Butner was president of the world, right, Dan Butner, you're president of the United States of America, how do we change society? Because the healthy choice is not the easy choice. It is so much easier to sit and watch screens and eat Twinkies than it is to go cook a whole food plant-based dinner. It's cheaper to buy pizza and chips than it is to buy beans and broccoli. How do we How do we slowly make changes at a greater societal level?
0: Well, in, in America, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the same with Europe. First thing is the agricultural bill. So right now we heavily subsidize these really cheap and unhealthy grains and meat and eggs and cheese, you know, if if uh, people had to pay the true price of say a hamburger, including the externalities of pollution and and uh, the the impact of carbon, a r- burger would cost about forty euros. Wow. So if everybody had to pay the true cost of uh, I, I'm, I, meat, wouldn't be a problem. Um, and, and instead of moving the incentives as they currently are to to soybeans and corn and wheat and rice, that if you move the incentive to producing organic fruits and vegetables, the price of those foods would come way down and that would spur business and enterprise into making products out of those because they're so much cheaper. They'd be more ubiquitous. Um, <clears throat> number two, I would make everybody pay the true cost of gasoline. Uh, if you include the externalities, you're probably looking at you know somewhere around uh Five euros per liter. So I'm doing quick math in my head. Uh, and that would force people out from behind their steering wheels onto their feet. I, I'd, I'd rather have people walking back and forth to work into their friend's house and tr- thinking they're going to do marathons their whole life. Uh, walking gets you about 90% of the physical activity you need. I'd also, um, um, create our city. So there are more places where they're more walkable, more bikeable. And when people bump into each other with frequency, the opportunity for them to create a relationship or a friendship goes up exponentially. So with just those things, I I think we we'd see about half the rate of uh, obesity and metabolic disease. I think we'd see uh, the physical activity level going up around 30% at a population level. And I think we'd see the happiness, And this is based on 11 years of research. I think we'd see the life satisfaction level of people going up 20 to 30% as well. And that would be a good start.
1: Dan, for president, you got my vote.
0: All right, I'm in. You're You're smooth. smooth. (laughs) You're
1: really smooth. It's really nice. Can I I go? Yeah, yeah, go, please. Purpose, Dan. Purpose is something that we all you know, it's been heralded like, find your true meaning, you know, find your North Star and go for it. And it's something that many people can struggle with. And many people can feel overwhelmed. It's like, I don't know what my purpose is. I'm 20. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know where to go. And you talk about Ikigai, which is one of the Blue Zone principles. Many people are kind of born, they kind of have the the plan to be there, as in the plan for their life. For anyone listening, like, I, I remember previously you talked about having cards that help people kind of Distill yeah. um, their their sense of purpose. How important is purpose, and how the hell do people find it where they're feeling overwhelmed, stuck,
0: troubled, confused? Yes. Yeah, so you know, I, in the original Blue Zones work, I, I noticed that there was always vocabulary for purpose in these places where people live a long time. They weren't worry, waking up in the morning with the stress and existential angst of you know what do I do with my life? You know, where do I fit into society? It came naturally. But we live in societies, or at least I do in America, where purpose is, is, is absent. You know, people spend too much time on their phones and and uh, most people are getting jobs. This is according to Gallup Jada, that are paying for health insurance and paying the bills. And only about 30 percent of Americans actually find purpose at work. So that forces us, most of us, to find purpose outside the workplace. And the term is um, the term is almost a cliche. People don't really think it through, but if, if you deconstruct purpose, it's got really three elements. It's, it's, uh, uh, what do I like to do? It's what am I good at? And the third and probably most important, what's my outlet for it? Because you can know what you're good at and know what you like to do. And, you know, watch TV for four and a half hours a day. And and that purpose doesn't mean anything. So you need that outlet. And I always encourage people to just sit quietly. We sit quietly so infrequently. Sit quietly with an empty screen or a piece of paper, even better, and make three columns. Columns, what I like to do. Second column, what am I good at? Third column, what's a potential outlet for this? and look for the commonality in those three, and you'll get a pretty good idea of purpose. You don't need Dan Butner to help you do that. Um, in the Blue Zone Challenge, I you know, unpacked that a little bit more. But the value proposition, uh, Robert Butler, Dr. Robert Butler, who was the founding um, director of the National Institutes of Aging, a legendary scientist, examined the writings retrospectively of people uh, over about a 10-year period and found that people who could articulate their sense of purpose, who could write it down in a phrase, were living about uh, eight years longer than people who uh, appeared to be runnerless. So, um, you know, that's sort of the empirical research that underpins the observations I made on Blue Zones. But, um, In in my mind, there's absolutely no dispute that uh, that, uh, taking the time to know and live your purpose is going to give you more good years as opposed to flapping in the breeze.
1: Okay, it makes huge sense what are your what are some of your bringing it back to your new book the Ameri- you know the I can't remember the exact name Blue Zones American Kitchen Blue mm-hmm. Zones American Kitchen the lost diet of America lot, and lost longevity lost diet. longevity diet. Oh, sorry I forgot the line, The tagline but a, I forget it too
0: yeah no, it's <laughs> I, I like to joke I'm at an age I can hide my own Easter eggs <laughs> 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 so here I'm gonna show it to you. There, there we you go. Backwards, no matter. Well, I don't know. No, that's, no, that's good. Looks, good. looks beautiful. Perfect. I like the cover. But, but, I look you know I tried, to look into it. I'm, I'm gonna order. show it off just a little bit. I had the best photographer at National Geographic, David McLean. So this is not only a hundred recipes to live to be a hundred, but it, it can sit on your coffee table as a photographic book. It's 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 really gorgeous. It's got a there's my dad who tested every one of the recipes with me, but it's a hundred recipes lived to a hundred. And it's a uh the the research in there really uncovers this lost diet of longevity. And we found it by actually finding dietary surveys uh done a hundred years ago. So this isn't just uh, anecdotal hot air. Uh this is uh underpinned with with real data. Uh it comes out. December fifth. I argue it's a great Christmas gift for anybody you'd like to see live longer. And um <laughs> I like that. Yeah, a- don't give it to your enemies. <laughs> give them that, that meat book. <laughs>
1: Very good. I like this. What are what uh, are some of your favorite recipes in it? Like what what are the big ones that jump out to you or what are stories within it? Because I imagine, like, you're an explorer, so obviously undercovering stories and the relatability of people's stories is what typically triggers a lot of people's heartstrings or emotions because it's relatable. Like, what are some of the stories that most most impacted you and the recipes that followed
0: with it. Well, you know, we had a Wampanoag Native American working uh uh, uh Carolyn Wynn uh with um working with uh an anthropologist who was kind of a modern day pilgrim recreating a real sixteenth uh, century seventeenth uh, century Thanksgiving. Um uh, talk about that at length. a Don Madrano. I don't I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Tex Mex cooking? Yes. Like okay,
1: texican Tex-Mex
0: texican. here in America is typically associated with like steak fajitas and cheese sl- slathered enchiladas, but uh this was a, a um Texas in fact was part of Mexico 150 years ago, it was called Tejas, and uh, the true Texas Mexican food uh was rich in moles, which are these beautiful gravies made out of uh mostly peppers and and um rich sauces uh, like these really yeah. kind of
1: earthy, long-lasting sauce. So, and also. lots of them with chocolate. Some of them with chocolate. Cacao anyway. No, rather some than...
0: have chocolate in them and some of them are, are really hot. Um, but um, he found the true ingredients of the texas mexico cuisine included pecans and walnuts, uh, wal- walnuts and uh, um, am- amaranth and uh, uh, cactus paddle. So it was mo- mostly plant and of course beans, corns and squash, but it's mostly plant-based. And Adana offers a Ah, uh, two or three of these original Tex Mex uh, recipes. Um, the, the, I think the most interesting food in America, and arguably the world, actually, is occurring in Hawaii, where over the past hundred years, uh, there's been this amazing fusion. We've had these waves of Asian immigrants, beginning with the with, beginning with the Chinese, the Filipinos. Uh, more more recently, the Hmong and the Vietnamese, and they mesh with these Native Americans, and the fusions that have come out of there is amazing. Uh, Chef Alan Wong uh, gave us uh, this amazing two ingredient recipe. Two uh, ingredient purple sweet potatoes. Emo, this was the this was the food that the number one longevity food in in Okinawa. Um, a lot of Okinawans in Hawaii. Uh, all you do is mix that with a can of coconut milk. You you steam or boil the potato, mix it with coconut milk, and it makes this this uh, uh, almost crack like delicious uh, puree. Which I've I've not found a person who doesn't like it. Uh, very easy to make uh, these gumbos from the Galagici people. So it's a hundred recipes with a maniacal focus on deliciousness.
1: And what about your dad's favorite recipe?
0: well my dad actually uh he he contributed oh god i i don't know it meant to be i just accidentally there's my dad what age, is, what age is he now and and
1: what's that what age is he now and where does he live he's he's
0: 87 and and you know it may seem well if, if this is a real work why is your dad coming along my dad grew up on a farm in minnesota meat and potatoes his whole life and um so I had him come along and taste sample every recipe. And he was the middle America book. If he didn't like it, I could be pretty sure most middle Americans wouldn't like it. So he gave it a thumbs down, did make it into the book. But uh, he contributed here his tomato eggplant and sweet potato pasta sauce, which he invented uh, all food from his garden. And uh, you know, I'm very proud of you know my dad. He's a consummate Blue Zone.
1: And how's he good at putting in, putting it into practice your Blue Zone principles?
0: Uh, you know, yes. First of all, he's a big gardener. Second of all, he's a big family man. Uh, he moves naturally all day long. He does his own household chores. Uh, he's amazingly vital at 87. Uh, you know, I think it was my influence that like weaned him off the bacon and the sausage. You know, he's mostly, I'd say he's 90% plant-based. He eats a little bit of meat. And, you know, if we could get the world to that level, uh, there w- you know, there wouldn't be as nearly as many problems with the environment with animal cruelty and, and with health, quite frankly. And so I'm quite proud of my father and his, and his uh, journey.
1: Beautiful. What a cool dude. Yeah. And can, what about, what about, can I ask one more? I was just going to say, what about with your family, with your own kids? How have you found with implementing with them? Because obviously, like, I, I, I'm I all in on the blue zones and all the principles I really am. And I try to cultivate them with our own children. But I'm also aware of the challenges with, you know, particularly kids growing up and screens and social media and peer-to-peer relationships and the values that are being espoused with modern pop culture and TV culture and whatnot. So. And junk food, just that typically 50% of... The average food consumed is ultra processed food, and even like, the challenges with our own kids. More like
0: seventy, yeah, yeah,
1: and uh, even even yeah. I look at, look at our own kids at Halloween or just like when we were when we were kids, we got a treat on a Friday night, and that was once a week. You got a bar of like you had a choice of a a bar of chocolate, like, and that was once a week. Whereas I see just how pervasive it is in our children's life, and that's with us being health advocates who are really trying to cut down on it.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, you probably only got one treat a week because your parents could afford it. And uh, now, you know, people with children, they want to they want to, you know, do the best. They and for a long time, it was it was treating children frequently. And, uh, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't know that was a bad idea. Now we know it's a bad idea. I I don't think it's uh, necessarily a lack of of uh, integrity or, or discipline on people. I think it's just a learning curve that we realize. You know, 20 years ago, people didn't know a chocolate bar was all that bad for you. Now we do. And, uh, you know, as far as my kids adopting the blue zone, it's my two youngest kids who are, you know, now in their 20s, uh, they don't do it at all, which, you know, they kind of make fun of me. But when my oldest turned 30 and he started to develop a little pouch and, you know, he got married and have uh, had kids. Now he started to. Uh, he and his family have ad- adopted more of a whole food, plant based diet, and they after dinner they they take a walk. Uh, he's very much a family man. and In fact, he's you know I sold the Blue Zone company, and he's he's kind of running it now. Uh, wow. So he's, he's he's very Blue Zones. Oh, that's that's,
1: pretty pretty that's great. Oh, that's good to hear. Alarm yeah. clocks, Dan. It's something that modern day culture most people listening use alarm clocks, and in the Blue Zones typically alarm clocks are not that used, or are they?
0: Well, their alarm clock was their window and this, when the sun came up through the window and hit their eyelids, that, uh, that woke them up. Um, but they said, but they went to bed with the sun and then woke up and they, most of them live in places where you get about 12 hours, uh, 11 to 13 hours of sun of uh, nighttime. And, and uh, so they have plenty of time to, there was nothing better to do than sleep on average. They sleep about eight hours and uh, for, for, L- longevity you should be sleeping a minimum of seven ideally eight to eight and a half hours this is probably the the optimal amount of sleep and if alarm clocks is cutting that short uh it's probably also cutting your life short
1: that's a one. nice that's nice, nice. One. and circling back to the first question i asked which was about the challenges of implementing the blue zone principles in modern society and in northern hemisphere and now, and now we're going to circle back to the same things of kind of we've got to really consciously, together, collectively... Curate. Curate better relationships with healthier type people. And I know that's that's really is such a core issue. But are there other things which you could give to anyone who's listening and going, okay, it's winter, it's dark, we've got about seven to eight hours daylight and it's often really grey and it's rainy and I don't feel like moving and I feel like eating a chocolate bar and a donut and I want to watch Netflix and I don't want to eat vegetables. What do I do, Dan.
0: That's a well, if you one. don't want to eat vegetables, you obviously don't have a Blue Zone kitchen book because they would you would want to eat vegetables after that. But no, seriously speaking, um, I would host people. I would host dinner parties at my house. Um, and rather than watching TV, connecting with other people, um, I would uh, optimize my kitchen so that I'm not prompted to eat the junk food. And some things we know work is taking the TV out of the kitchen. Um, people who watch TV while they eat consume mindless calories, uh, taking the toaster uh, off of the counter. We know people who have a toaster on the counter weigh about two kilograms more after a couple years than people who've taken that toaster off because the toaster prompts us to put something in it. And most of what we put in toasters isn't all that healthy for us. Put a uh, fruit bowl in the middle of our uh, kitchen tables or in a well-lighted lit prominent place and keep that full. That's going to prompt us to eat, to eat, uh, to eat fruit. Uh, I would say buy. you know, Ireland is a much more um, uh, walkable and bikeable place than America is. You're never going to walk or bike unless you have a comfortable shoes. Uh, and this sounds basic but for a lot of people. It doesn't occur to them. And go out and buy yourself a really nice bike that you enjoy. And by the way, it can even be an e-bike. People who own e-bikes get more physical activity than people who own regular bikes. Uh, Rather than spend all your money on cars, uh, get a bicycle. And um, start using it to get to work or to your friend's house or wherever you get a cup of coffee. So it's these sort of systematic environmental changes. The other way, by the way, is to adopt a dog. We know that people who own dogs have a much lower BMI and lower rates of heart disease uh, than people who don't have dogs because, you know, dogs need to be walked every day. And if the dog is getting walked, you know, the human's getting walked as well and just petting a dog lowers cortisol levels. So these are all blue zones approaches to, to, uh, uh, uh losing weight, looking younger, feeling younger, and, you know, living the capacity that this wonderful machine called our body offers us.
1: Nice tips, I like them. Yeah. They're practical. <laughs> Dan, you're playing a stormer. Yeah. Um, how, how's your pickleball skills these days?
0: Man, I I was undefeated last night. And I, I played five games and won them all. Dan, Dan Butner, uh, you legend. That said, my my opponents were all in their nineties. <laughs> <laughs> Stacking the deck in your favor. Good environmental design, Dan. <laughs> no, 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 I'm getting better. You know, it's it's. uh uh it's a um it's a it's a pursuit of passion for me um but yeah yeah you guys play
1: no, no never people. even done i wanted i heard you talk oh, about pickleball it's like tennis meets <laughs> table Badminton tennis or something on a small court or something
0: yes yes and it, so it's way more social it's fast uh it doesn't require running uh it's a sport that you guys would pick up in, in 30 minutes and you'd be 90% as good as me. (laughs) I'm serious. I mean, it's, it's, (laughs) it's a, it's a, the learning curve is, you know, compressed to bam. And uh, you guys should come visit me in Miami. I'll teach you. Yeah at Blue Zone headquarters here in Miami <laughs> nice <laughs> love to okay deal we'll take you up on that someday oh Dan you're
1: amazing and for any listener who didn't get about your book which is just out December 4th I look forward to buying it I genuinely do and using it I'm going to order a copy after this Blue Zones American, American kitchen.
0: kitchen
1: that's it it's the lost rest. the, the lost American diet of longevity woo by the wonderful, yours yeah. truly, Dan. Thank here. you very
0: much. And uh, you know, if anybody, I didn't answer your question. First of all, I want to thank your audience for sitting here for an hour with us. And people's time is valuable. You could be doing a lot of other things with your time. Instead, you spent it with us. Um, and so, on behalf of you know, I think all three of us thank you for that. And uh, if you have any other questions, I can be reached at Dan Butner on uh, instagram and i'm good at at answering people's uh, direct messages and you know that's how that's how i met the happy pair so um you know great great connections sometimes come out of little phones <laughs> here, here, here. i like
1: to sometimes play in there it's very good yeah. it's very good well dan you're amazing i love your work love your attitude I'll and do-do. uh you know wishing you all the best to be the pickleball champion yeah we look forward to taking you up on it We'll come whip your ass someday.
0: <laughs> We're not competitive at all being identical to him. I'm not good <laughs> <laughs> Well, good all luck right, with the guys. book launch.
1: Uh, great to chat to you as always, Dan. I love Dan, I love Dan. Yeah, we're total fanboys here. He really is such a legend. Um, and his message about environmental design is fundamental and it's something that's so different and so like to the core of societal it change. It really is. The most selfish thing you can do in terms of your own health is to inspire your loved ones to be healthy and encourage them to be healthy. Or but to get a healthy mate. Yeah, really is. That's simple. Um, do check out his books. Dan's got incredible books. He really really does. I know myself, I'm going to buy a couple of them. Um, and really I look forward to more conversations with him and this, if this is your first intro into the Blue Zones do check it out there's so much gold in terms of what we can apply to our own personal individual lives and uh, yeah wishing you a wonderful wonderful day